0: Romans chapter 8. I'm going to try to get through 17 verses. Romans 8 is in many ways the very heart of the book of Romans. In verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1 says this, Therefore, in line of everything he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, and to be in means to be the realm of, or under the influence of, or to be saved, you are into Christ, you believe in Christ, there is now no longer any condemnation, any judgment. You are free from sin and the consequences of that sin. It's an amazing statement. Um, It's probably something that we all ought to share more with people who are struggling in life, that if you are in Christ, there's no longer any condemnation. You have been forgiven. Verse 2 says this, The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, the word law here probably means more like the principle or... The guiding force, it's not the law found in the Old Testament that way. So, when fundamentally, in in a doctrinal sense, in in a theological sense, that if you are in the spirit of Christ, and by the way, the idea of spirit is used a lot, but you are in the spirit of life in Christ, and the word spirit probably is capitalized in your version. It's referenced to the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit in your life, cause of Christ, you are free from the law of sin and death. At the end of the day, that's really what matters. In the end of the day, when I know that I'm going to have to face God, ultimately what matters is I am not trapped in sin, and death means that sense of eternal death, that, that result of all my sins. Sin and what the result of that is. Sin and death go hand in hand. Not just physical death, but the death of the soul, the death of life, the death of your relationship with God, just the end. I'm free of that there's a lot of discussions sometimes that go on about what the ultimate purpose of the church is. And I get a lot of those discussions, and I don't disagree with a lot of things. But at the end of the day, when you think about the one thing that people need, they need to be free from sin and death. And the only way that happens is in Jesus. When you think about Jesus giving us the great commandment to go make disciples, telling us before he ascended in Acts to be witnesses, to telling us to love God, love others, When you put all of that together, and the one thing we need is freedom from sin and death, that probably ought to tell us what our focus should be in dealing with people. People need to be free from that. So he tells us those things. And then verse 3, then, he gets into the rationale for that. For what the law could not do, the Old Testament law, it couldn't do it weak as it was through the flesh. In other words, through the human aspect. God did it. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the, in, a, in the flesh. So he sent Jesus as flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. There is a, uh, there is a heresy that was prevalent when Paul wrote, becoming more prevalent later on, called the asceticism. And the heresy of doceticism is that Jesus simply appeared to be in some way God. He gave. He wasn't really God. He was just it was the aspect of God. Or it could be that he was the aspect of being human. Paul says Jesus is in flesh. He came as flesh. To do what the law could not do. Which is deal with sin. The law points out sin. It just can't solve the sin problem. Have you ever met someone who constantly points out problems but never has a solution? I've met him. I meet them all the time. All the time. Lots of people always pointing out a problem, which I appreciate. I appreciate it more if they have a solution, if the solution is actually a good solution, even if it's not a good solution, even if it's a bad solution. At least they thought about it. You ever meet someone who thinks they have the gift of criticism, that that's a spiritual gift? Now listen, some things are legitimate. I get that. I mean, some things are very legitimate. And, and I understand. I don't have any problem with that. Some things have been pointed out to us today. Very legitimate. And we appreciate legitimate concerns. We love legitimate concerns. Sometimes things slip through the cracks. So if you've got legitimate things, we love those. <laughs> some, but if you have something every week... Probably a bit too much, right? <laughs> now, I say that because here's why. You know what the law does? Law, the law points out all the problems, but never does anything about it. And Jesus, you know what Jesus did? He did something about it. So God sent his son. We're going to talk about that at Christmas. He sent his son to deal with the problem. He was an offering for sin. He gave his life up. He condemned sin. He didn't just point out the problem. He solved the problem. So that then, the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. What the law couldn't do, Jesus did. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the what? Spirit. Now here's here's the whole thing. Once we become a follower of Christ, not only are we in the spirit, then we live that way. We don't walk according to the flesh. We walk according to the Spirit. Now, last week we talked about the sin that, you know, know, we we get trapped by sin. We're tempted by sin. That battle with sin in us, and it's there. But ultimately, at the end of things, we walk according to the flesh. I mean, to the Spirit. Now, I I liken the Christian life to a movie. You know, in a movie, there may be certain parts. If you took a movie of your life, if you looked at certain parts of the movie, you think, well, that person's a lousy person. Or if you just took one picture, they might take the one picture in your life's movie of using sin. But if you saw the whole movie, you would see a person who lived according to the Spirit. In the course of our life, even though there's problems, and there's setbacks, and there's a war of sin within us, we live according to the Spirit. This is how you know you're a follower of Christ. I think it's D. Martin Lord Joins who said that the ultimate assurance of our Christian faith is the possession of the Holy Spirit of God. If you know the Holy Spirit of God has your life, you know you're saved. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're in a heap of trouble. Now we got some friends in, uh, in our world who think that you're saved before you get you know, the Holy Spirit within you, and the Holy Spirit is a second blessing, yada, yada, yada. They're just flat wrong. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you ain't a Christian. Period in the story. We live by the Spirit of God. Notice in verse 5 For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot, get this. You cannot please God. It's so important. If you are not a follower of Christ, you cannot please God. Does God love you? Yes. So I'm going to work backwards from verse 8 to go back to verse 5. We live in a culture today where oftentimes it talks about there are people who are outside of Christ who are not Christians who do good things. And they do. But they do most of the time. They do it for the wrong reasons. But here's the thing you need to understand. Just because they do good things does not mean God is pleased with them. Because God ultimately is not measuring our connection to him based on whether we do good things. It's on whether we have given our life to Christ. But here's the thing. You can do good, but if you don't do good to honor God, you're doing good ultimately to honor self. The follower of Christ in all of his or her life is set on honoring God. It is the difference between life in the flesh and life in the spirit. So I know, you know, in, in my own life, I really truly, my, my, my daily desire is to honor God. So worship services, when we put them together, and my overarching prayer is that God be honored and Christ be proclaimed. When, when I do Bible study, I know sometimes I'll make a few mistakes. I know there's probably a chance that I might upset someone along the way or offend them. I, I, t- I take that as a possibility all the time. But ultimately, I want to honor God. And one of the reasons I am so blunt sometimes, and it's one of the reasons that in my personality I tend not to be very diplomatic most of the time when I teach, is because I want to make sure God is honored. And I want to make sure you receive right information. Even if the right information bothers you. Because I have learned this. I can't honor God and make sure your feelings aren't always certain. I I understand I can't go out of my way to hurt people's feelings. We all know that. But what I'm saying is, In our lives as followers of Christ, sometimes we worry about whether truth offends someone. Yes, it always offends someone. This Sunday, I'm going to talk about the birth of Christ. I'm going to talk about the virgin birth that will bother people. I don't want them to be bothered, but more importantly, I want them to believe the truth of the virgin birth. That's more important because it honors God. And so when you walk according to the Spirit... Understand, people won't always like what you have to say and what you do. You have to be comfortable with that. Someone told me not too long ago about something that says that people would get upset about that. And I said, You've got to become, get to a point in your life where you're comfortable with people being upset if God is being honored. Now, don't go out of your way to be obnoxious, don't go out of your way to be offensive. Go out of your way to honor God. So here's what it says. If you are according to the flesh, your mind's on things of the flesh. According to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. You've got two different mindsets. So if I'm focused on the Spirit and you're focused on the flesh, you're not going to like what I have to say or do or teach. That's all of us. That is okay. And if you live according to the flesh, I'm not going to like all the things you say. But here's what I have learned. I'm not concerned about helping people who live according to the flesh believe and think the way I do. They'll never will. I want people who live according to the flesh to learn to live according to the spirit. And the only way that ever happens is if they come to faith. In Jesus Christ. Therefore, I have to proclaim the truth about Jesus Christ. Because no one will ever come to Jesus by believing what is false. You've got to make a choice in your life. The choice is between the flesh and the spirit. And when you're a follower of Christ, it's a very easy choice to make. We live according to the Spirit. So when I look at a person, I don't judge people. I Not, well, some. <laughs> a little bit. I look at the end result and say, do they give evidence of living in the Spirit? I know they're going to make mistakes and say and do dumb things. Or are they giving evidence of living in the flesh? The people who live according to the flesh, I really want them to come to live according to the spirit. And that'll never happen without Christ. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the spirit is life. Because the mindset on the flesh, verse 7, is hostile to God. Anyone who is not a follower of Christ is hostile to God. This Sunday we'll have people sitting in church. I don't think it's today. I look at y'all, I think. Y'all are all good. But I know every Sunday we have people sitting in our church. In our worship services. All three of them. Who because they are not fathers of Christ. They are by default hostile to God. And they don't even know it. Verse 9 says, however. You are not in flesh. You are in the spirit. If... That word, if, could be since. Since the Spirit of God dwells in you. Even when anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ is interchangeable. Notice, you have a Trinitarian thing. Spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, God and Christ. There is three persons of the Trinity, but there is only one God. And Paul does a magnificent job of reminding us That we are not polytheists who worship three gods. But one God. Who is a unity. Father, Son, and Spirit. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. That essence of God. Who He is. We are in God. We have the Spirit dwelling within us. It is the mark of salvation. It's who we are said, if Christ is in you, though your body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. In other words, because of sin, we know that we face death. There is the certainty of death. Christ tarries in coming. But we live spiritually. The spirit of Christ is in us, so our spirit is alive. In verse 10, it says, yet the the word spirit should be lowercase. When it refers to the Holy Spirit, uppercase. Because we have the Holy Spirit, our spirit is alive. Because of the righteousness of God, not our righteousness. So even though we face death, we're, we're alive. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So in other words, because the Holy Spirit dwells within us, we have life, even in the flesh, even in our mortal bodies. He doesn't use the word flesh so as not to confuse it with this previous argument. But our body has life in it. Because it has the Holy Spirit. We are alive in Christ, right? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. He's become new. We are alive. And so being alive in Jesus... Is the result of the sanctifying cleansing work of the Holy Spirit within us, as we are made righteous, declared righteous, and justified, and then being made righteous in sanctification. So, He who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. The God who raised Jesus from the dead is our God within us. And he'll give us life. And verse 12 says, So then brothers. He keeps, he keeps saying, so then or therefore. In light of what he said, he's building this argument. It's like a stair step kind of building up. We are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. But what does verse 13 says? If you are living according to the flesh, you must die. We're not living according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit, if we're living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In other words, we are, even though that, as we said in chapter 7, the sinful war remains within us, as we begin to see that being put to death, we become more and more alive. We are living in Christ and alive in Jesus. People ought to look at followers of Christ and see a difference in their life. They ought to see an optimism, a hope, a thankfulness, a joy that doesn't exist in people who aren't. And here's the thing. As we get a little bit older, closer to the end, we ought to be looking at the end with a greater sense of celebration and anticipation. Not of gloom and doom. Now, I'm, I'm in no hurry to die Please understand, I don't mind waiting a while. There's a few things I want to live to see. I want to live to see the Cowboys win a Super Bowl again. So uh, right now, I've got a way to go. I want to see the Longhorns win a national championship. i like to see those occur in the same year. So there's a pretty good chance that I may never die. I want, well, I can't say that, anymore. I was going to say I want to live where I get to a point of life where I, on Sunday morning here I get on the platform in 20 minutes, but that's already happened, so I can't ask for that. But I also know this, I don't look at the world in a gloomy, or I look at the, you know, as the end of life or coming in a way that is negative. As I look at life ahead of me, I look at joy. I look to anticipating and celebrating more of life. The longer I live, the more I learn to celebrate my life in Christ. That's what we should do. And while I'm in no hurry for the end to come, the end isn't the end. It's just a passage. For if you are being led by the Spirit of God, you are sons of God, sons and daughters, but son is title. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again. You have received a spirit of adoption as sons, which is a title by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So I need to spend a few moments. We we have concept of adoption here. Um, you know, I've, my our daughter is adopted. A few others of you have adopted kids. If you want to raise your hand, you don't have to. But if you have adopted anyone in your life, you want to raise a few of your hand. So when we adopted Kelly, Kelly is our daughter, period. Um, um, recently, she uh, was able to encounter her birth mother for the first time in her life, and she calls her birth mother by her birth mother's name because she doesn't think of her as her mother. Debbie is her mom. Adoption, she is ours. Now, here's the thing. When you think of adoption, we think of that, and it's right, but you've got to go even back into Christ. It's even more so. When someone in the day of Christ was adopted, they were considered to be part of their lineage, in essence, of their bloodline. Like Jesus was adopted by Joseph. Joseph, then, Jesus is under the household of Joseph. His descendants, ancestors, are all of Joseph's bloodline. Here's the thing. When Julius Caesar needed to pick a successor, he got Octavius, who was his nephew, and adopted him as his son. Octavius became the son of Julius and succeeded him as emperor. Now, that is the concept of life that they're thinking about. It is real sonship. When we are adopted, we are the literal sons and daughters of God. It is our relationship. There is no breaking of that bond. And we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is Aramaic for Father. And so we recognize God as Father. Interesting, Jesus refers to God in every t- all but one place. He refers to him as Father or Abba. And so Paul uses that connection. Both, he writes both Aramaic and Greek, Abba, Father, for an emphatic selection. It's emphatic. It's, 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 he is the Father. And it's a term of endearment and respect. So, therefore, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, gives testimony or testifies with our spirit, we are children of God. The Holy Spirit tells our spirit, we are God's children. Christians should never live without absolute assurance of their salvation. There are uh, I, I, I've known... Some there are denominations. Uh, I've had guided people part of my church. I'm sure I have it now. Who believe that it's possible to lose your salvation. That you don't have assurance. All I can tell you is from a biblical standpoint. They are dead solid wrong. Now. You may lose the comfort of knowing your salvation is assured. <laughs> because you're living in sin. But the doctrinal position You are adopted as sons. In antiquity, you could not unadopt a child. In the state of Texas where Kelly was adopted, I could not disown her. A natural child could be disowned. In other words, a child by blood, you can disown that child. Once you adopt a child, you can never disown that child. In the day of Christ, an adopted child could never be disqualified as a child. It was a guaranteed position for life. The doctrine, the book of Romans is phenomenal. You have the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of sanctification, the doctrine of adoption, all throughout. it. The, all, the, all the shuns. Everything that ends in shun is a doctrine, basically. Adoption is the guarantee of the assurance of our salvation. And the Holy Spirit tells us that. So I never live in fear. No matter what happens or what I may do. That I will lose the assurance. The guarantee of the actuality. Of my salvation. So that verse 17 says this. And if children, if we are children. Then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Think about it. Not just... What God has to offer. We are heirs of God. Fellow heirs with Christ. And indeed if we suffer with him. So that we may be glorified with him. So here's what he said. The people in Rome. In all the letters. Of the New Testament era. There was always. There was always the danger of suffering. And so the, the idea was always this. If in you are Suffering. For Christ. And you are faithful. Then you understand you will be glorified with Christ. Now in America that's a tough one for us. Because we're not really going to suffer for Jesus. But the understanding should be this. We are heirs with Christ. Of an heirship of God. And when we endure the struggles of the faith. We will also get to endure the glorification of Christ. Not so much that we're glorified. But we celebrate that. And we will live in glory with a new body. All that stuff. But the main concept is this. Facing persecution. And Paul would eventually die in Rome. So that's a reality. The hands of Nero. Is the evidence that one day we will celebrate with the glory of Christ. So this is what's important. And so far in chapter 8 we've got a lot more to go. As a follower of Christ, I have the Spirit of God within me, the Holy Spirit. He testifies and gives assurance then that I am in relationship with God through Christ. I have been adopted as a son, and as a son or daughter, but son is a title, but as it does that adoption, I can't ever lose that relationship. And I'm not under the law. But I have fulfilled the expectations of law, being in Christ, so that even though I battle with sin, I am not overcome by sin. I am not of sin, I am not of flesh, I am of spirit. And I live in the realm of the spirit, having overcome sin and death. Well, that's a lot of stuff that I covered pretty quickly, so you may have some questions if your question is, where can I find it? Remember what I said earlier, Google. <laughs> if you have a doctrinal question or a question of the discussion, let's talk about that. Any questions? Yes, sir. We read do good to honor God versus, to honor God. God versus doing good, and then the spirit versus the flesh. question, how can that be measured or confirmed in someone's life that they are letting the Spirit be in the lead or in charge? I, I would think the measure, how can it be measured, that you were living by the Spirit and out of the flesh, and that so honoring God. I, I would say the measuring, obviously, is not quantitative, it's qualitative. I know as you engineers like quantity, us godly men like quality. <laughs> if you take all of Scripture in its entirety... And bring that into the passage. And you continue to do in the book of Romans in its entirety. Paul will talk about spiritual gifts. Uh, he will talk about certain things. And later on in chapter 8, he will talk about you know, the, the love and, uh, of God that conquers all. The, the way you measure or the way you have that assurance, I think, is understanding what your motives truly are. And so I'll, I'll go back to the example of what we do in a worship service. It's the best example I know. So from all of our, all of us, whether it's me, Mike, Brian, or Joe, or Troy, or Barry, whoever's involved, when the intent of the whole thing is to be sure that above all else, God is honored, and that is the goal to which you are aiming, I think you have that assurance. When you realize that you've done things that have dishonored God, and that becomes the problem, so... For instance, if if I say something that is true, if I say Sunday that if that lack of belief in the virgin birth of Christ is evidence of one not being a Christian, that bothers someone, it's not going to bother me, but if I were to say something to someone flippantly or maybe... Uh, there's a, you know there's maybe I say something that that I'm joking with someone and that flippant joke or offend someone that would bother me and that's evidence that in the one sense of of hurting someone or offending them that was because I was honoring God but the other other case I wasn't honoring God does that make sense so it's it's why something happens. So I'll have people. I have people all the time come up to me. When I, it's amazing how many people say, "I kind of disagree with you on that." And I'm like, "Well, I kind of don't care." <laughs> you know, bring some scripture to support you, and if you don't, then there's an old phrase we have called "scripture whip." I'm gonna scripture whip you all over the place. If you don't have scripture to back up why you disagree with me, your opinion is irrelevant. So in that case, I doesn't bother me. But if but if someone says something and, and approaches me about it, like. They're concerned about something, and I'm offensive in my answer, and it's not a biblical... I mean, because, you know, someone tells me I thought it was too cold or too loud, and instead of being responsive in a kind way, I blow them off, or maybe I, I say something I shouldn't say, and that offends them. That was wrong. That's how you know when what you're doing, is it honoring God or not? And you come to that realization. I don't know if that makes sense. In my mind, it's brilliantly worded. Whether it translates to you or not, I don't know. I'll put it in an equation. You put it in an equation. Let it know, yeah. Does that make, I hope that makes sense. My bottle, water bottle's leaking. That's not good. Stops leaking. Even an engineer could figure that out. Okay. What else? It's a good question. Anything? Well... We look forward to seeing you Sunday. We'll see you later.